Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese, and I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Bart Strumer. Bart is professor of philosophy at the University of Groningen. He works in the area of moral philosophy known as metaethics. Metaethics addresses broad questions about the nature of moral theorizing itself. His new book is titled Unbelievable Errors, an Error Theory About All Normative Judgments. It's published with Oxford University Press. Now, it's intuitive to think that statements of the form lying is wrong ascribe a property, namely that of wrongness, to acts of the type lying. In this way, one might think that statements of this kind are a lot like statements of the form Bill is left-handed. This statement also seems to ascribe a property, left-handedness, to Bill. But what about statements like Bill is a Wookiee? There is no property of being a Wookiee, and the statement therefore seems to be false. Now, what's called the error theory is the view that moral statements of the kind that attribute moral properties are always false, because no such properties exist. In a fabulous new book, Bart offers a novel kind of defense of the error theory as it applies to all normative judgments. Now, the character of this defense is fascinating. Bart argues that the error theory cannot be believed, and this unbelievability counts in favor of the theory. Now, that's a heavy thought, and so there's a lot to talk about. But let's start by greeting our guest. Hi, Bart. Hi, Bob. How are you today? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Thanks for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. Oh, thank you. Well, we usually start uh, with the author, so uh, we won't make an exception in this uh, episode. So why don't you kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I, I teach philosophy at the University of Groningen, as you just uh, as you just said. And Groningen is a, a, a small university town in the north of the Netherlands, and it's uh, quite close to where I grew up. I also grew up in the north of the Netherlands, and I actually was an undergraduate here in Groningen as well. And I... I Came to philosophy in a kind of roundabout way, I suppose. So as an undergraduate, I initially uh, did uh, economics. I studied economics. But I wasn't enjoying that very much, and I wanted to do something else. And I'd I'd always been very interested in in politics. Uh, But Groningen didn't have a a politics department. So I looked around a little bit, and I found that there was a, a fairly prominent Dutch political theorist who was a professor in the philosophy department in, in Groningen. And that's how I ended up doing philosophy. So I initially just wanted to do political philosophy because because of this interest in, in politics. 
But then I found that that the things in philosophy I was most interested in were more foundational questions. So, for example, in in political philosophy, there's a lot of disagreement. So uh, political philosophers disagree about justice. So uh, Rawls might say that justice requires this and Nozick might say that justice requires something else. And the sorts of questions I was interested in was were, were, were like you know in cases of disagreement like that is are, are is is one of them really right and mm-hmm. and um, what would it be for a judgment about justice to be, be to really be right or correct or true or something like that what what could make it true or or correct so I found pretty quickly that those were the questions I was I was most interested in, and 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 those are the questions, as as you just said, that that, that metaethics uh, deals with. So that's that's how I ended up in the area of philosophy that's known as metaethics. And so after completing uh, the the philosophy degree in Groningen, I went to the UK and I did a, a PhD at the University of Reading. Um, and I stayed in the UK for a total of uh, 15 years, and a few years ago I, I came back to, to Groningen to, to teach here. Wonderful. Uh, can I ask just a, a question about metaethics very broadly? Sure. Um, yeah. So again, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm an outsider uh, uh, to the to, to this particular subfield within philosophy, but um, it does seem to me like it's had a a, a, a pretty striking renaissance, uh, maybe in the past uh, ten years or so. Am I right to think that? I think that's right. Yeah, maybe maybe the last twenty years or ah. so. But yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do, do you have any thoughts a, a about what lively account, area? What do you do? You have any idea? Can you, what what do you think accounts for that? Uh, that's a yeah. That's hard to say. Actually, okay. I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, um, I guess it's. I mean, maybe it's it's a combination of. Um, People starting to defend very sophisticated versions of expressivism and uh, on one side and then on the other side, uh, people um, defending new versions of non-naturalism and other traditional positions in metaethics. And there's just been a lot of lively debate in the last uh, 20 years or so. Yeah, so yeah. That, yeah, yeah. It seems to me again. Just it, I was a graduate student in the in the '90s, and um, uh, you know there wasn't a lot of metaethics that that was being offered as sort of coursework at at that time. And it always sort of struck me as odd that now it's just, it, it seems like it's all over the journals. Um, but yeah. um, so uh, the book is 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 about uh, is is a is a is a kind of defense of of uh, the error theory, which uh, I'm sure many, but not all of our listeners w- w- will uh, will be familiar with. So maybe one place to begin, though, uh, in, in, in getting into the the, the, the the core of your book um, is, is to just talk in the, in the broadest sense about uh, what it is to call a theory the an error theory or what the error theory is. Um, maybe you can um, start us off with a quick summary and uh, maybe talk a little bit about Mackey and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. So, so the error theory was uh, was first defended by a philosopher called John Mackey hmm. in a book uh, entitled uh, "Ethics: Inventing Right and Wrong," and he first defended it in a, in a, in a, um, uh, a journal article in the 1940s, I think. But it really took off in the 1970s when he when he wrote this book about ethics. And the error theory really consists of two parts. So the first part of the theory is uh, a view that's known as cognitivism in metaethics. And cognitivism says that moral judgments are beliefs in the sense that they're mental states that represent the world as being a certain way. 
And they do that by ascribing a property to something in the world. So, for example, the judgment that lying is wrong is a belief that represents lying as being a certain way. Uh, and it does that by ascribing a property to lying, namely the property of being wrong. So it says that lying has a certain feature, you might say, and that feature is the feature of being wrong. So that's one part of the view. That's what it says about what moral judgments are. But then uh, the error, what's distinctive about the error theory is that it denies that properties like wrongness exist. So it says moral judgments ascribe properties like wrongness and rightness and goodness and badness, but those properties don't actually exist. And as you said in the introduction, if you ascribe a property to something in the world and the property doesn't exist, then you're ascribing a property to something that doesn't have the property. And if you're ascribing a property to something that the thing doesn't have, then what you're saying is false. So the conclusion that Mackey drew from this is that uh, all moral judgments are uh, are false. So that's that's the theory that he was that he was defending. And yeah. in yeah, sorry. Please continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in 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 uh, ethics, inventing right and wrong, he he gave two main arguments for for the error theory. Uh, the first argument is an argument that's known as the argument from queerness, and the other argument, the second argument, is known as the argument from relativity. Um, the argument from queerness says that um, if there was a property of wrongness, then it would be a property that is utterly different from any other property that we know. Um, and it's a little bit unclear how exactly uh, Mackey uh, thinks that the property would have to be different. He says some things that suggest that the property would have to be uh, sort of intrinsically motivational. So anybody who's aware of the property of wrongness would be motivated not to do things that are wrong. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation of what Mackey's saying um, which perhaps makes it more plausible, it would be to, to, to say that the property of wrongness is normative. It, it, it sort of tells us what to do, you might, you might say. And in, in that respect, it's unlike any other property we know. And then Mackey says, well, um, given that properties like rightness and wrongness are unlike any other property uh, we know, there is a strong reason to suppose that that property doesn't exist, and that's what and that what what's actually going on here is that we're just projecting something onto the world that isn't isn't really there. So that's the argument from queerness. And then Mackey also had uh, another argument, the argument from relativity, and the argument from relativity says uh, just look around you at the different moral judgments that people make, and especially the the judgments that people, the moral judgments that people might make in other cultures, which might be very very different from the judgments that, that we make in, in Western liberal democracies. Um, and then Mackey says, well, what is the best explanation of why there are such differences between uh, the judgments that people make in different cultures? Is it that one culture has detected the moral properties as they really are and the other, pro and the other culture is just mistaken? Or is it rather that there are maybe sociological differences between these cultures? There are historical differences between these cultures. People have been socialized in different ways. They read different newspapers. Their society works in different ways. Is that perhaps the best explanation of why they make different moral judgments? And Amaki says, well, uh, uh, the, the, clearly the second explanation is the better 
explanation, at least according to him. Um, and he thinks that that's another reason to think that moral properties don't exist because that explanation doesn't actually appeal to the existence of moral properties. It just appeals to um, the culture that people find themselves in. Right. And I, I take it, though, that um, one of the uh, – at least for some, one of the surprising um, upshots of the, the view as Mackey understood it is that um, Mackey thinks that the adopting the error theory has almost or has very little impact on our first order moral judgments that's right yeah so he he defends the theory in the first chapter of the book and then in the second uh, chapter and the later chapters of the book he he goes on to make various claims about morality so <laughs> uh, there is a kind of tension there I guess um, um, I guess Mackey Mackey saw himself as maybe putting forward a more modest kind of morality that we're just sort of constructing together rather than the, kind, the realist kind of morality that he's, that he's attacking. Uh, but there's definitely a tension there. So um, uh, I don't think there's anybody who defends the error theory but who has completely stopped making moral judgments. It just right. seems that that would be a very, very difficult thing to do and certainly something that Mackey didn't stop doing. And I don't know any other error theorist who, who really stopped doing that. Right, great. So we'll, we'll as let's turn now to your book, and we'll, we'll have to come back uh, a little bit later in the conversation to uh, that, that sort of upshot about uh, how we, uh, if, if we adopt the error theory, what happens? Um, yeah, sure. Because you've got views on that as well. But um, so uh, let's turn to your to, to your book, Unbelievable Errors. Now. Um, uh, as you were just describing, it seems like the, the, the first item on the to-do list for the error theorist is um, uh, to give reasons why uh, one should deny the existence of the properties or the features that are referenced in the discourse about which one is proposing an error theory. Yeah. Um, and so your book offers arguments against um, two pretty prominent uh, kinds of realism about uh, about moral properties. Um, uh, and again, many of our listeners will be familiar with, with this kind of distinction. Uh, there are realists who are reductive realists, and then there are realists who are non-reductive realists, and you think that uh, both forms of these uh, of these realist doctrine of this realist doctrine um, uh, uh, you know can be um, uh, can be defeated. Um, can you run us through uh, maybe start with uh, with the non with the non reductive uh, I'm sorry with the non reductive realist can you, can you run us through uh, you know the, this is I know in the book it's it's very precise and admirably precise uh, but maybe um, uh, you can just sort of give us a good thumbnail of of your argument against uh, non reductive realism. Yeah, sure. So, so maybe, maybe I should step back a little bit and, and say say something a bit more general about sure. the, the, the structure of the first part of the book. So, so the the main thing I do in the, in sort of the first half of the book, I suppose, is 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 defend the error theory by attacking all the alternatives to the error theory. And the reason why I do it like that is that the error theory is just a very very unattractive view, right? So it <laughs> says all of our moral judgments are false, and the view I defend is even broader. So it says all normative judgments are false, including judgments about reasons for belief and reasons for action, that is a really a super unattractive view. So the only way to defend a view like that, I think, is to look at the whole field of metaethics, look at all the competitors to the error theory, and try to rule them out one by one. And then once you've done that, you've ended up with an argument for, uh, for the error theory, I think. 
And so, uh, as you say, one of the one of the alternatives is is realism, and there are two kinds of realism. So one version is a non-reductive view, and the other version is a reductive view. And I define those views in a specific way. So I say normative, uh, sorry, the non-reductive realism is the view that normative properties uh, exist and that they're different from what I call descriptive properties. And descriptive properties are properties that can be uh, ascribed so that, of, that, uh, that you can say that something has using only descriptive language. So uh, non-reductive realism says that normative properties cannot be ascribed using only descriptive language, in other words. And reductive realism, which is the other kind of realism, says that normative properties are identical to descriptive properties, and that means that we could, at least in principle, ascribe normative properties using only descriptive, non-normative uh, language. Okay, and so then um, um, what I do is I argue, I, I argue against each of those uh, two forms of, of realism. And what I say against non-reductive realism is that if we take properties to be in the world, part of the world, rather than just meanings of words, um, then I think we have to say that um, whenever two predicates – so predicates are bits of language that ascribe a property. So, for example, the predicate is wrong, just the words is wrong. Um, um, those words ascribe the property of, of uh, wrongness. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, – I say that if we take properties to be in the world rather than just meanings of predicates, then it, then we have to say that necessarily coextensive predicates, so that means predicates that uh, apply to the same things in all possible worlds, so that necessarily apply to the same things, that necessarily coextensive predicates ascribe a single property. So whenever two predicates are necessarily coextensive, they ascribe a single property. And then... I argue that for every normative predicate, so for every predicate like is wrong, is right, is a reason, is good, is bad, and so on, for every normative predicate, we can construct a descriptive predicate that is necessarily coextensive with that normative predicate. And so then it follows that if there are normative properties, they must be identical to descriptive properties because for every normative predicate, we can construct a descriptive predicate that ascribes the same property as that normative predicate. Um, and that means that if there are normative properties, then they must be identical to descriptive properties. I see. So would, good. So then would it be right to say that um, the engagement in the first part of the book, at least the, the, the part of the book that deals with these realist uh, uh, theses, sort of is like a domino? argument, right? It's to sort of say, look, the, the realist, the, the realist, the, the non-reductive version of the realist view, if you're going to be a realist, you've got to be a reductive realist because there's That's no right. way to, yeah. and then you have a separate argument against the reductive realist. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, okay, yeah. good, good. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so if we're going to be realists, then it looks as if this point about um, uh, coextensional uh, normative and descriptive predicates uh, uh, should should push us into a reductive form of realism, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, how, why shouldn't we be reductive realists then? <laughs> okay, so that's <laughs> that's the other part of the argument against realism. So, yeah. so then I say, look, okay, so what we've established now is that if there are normative properties, then they must be identical to descriptive properties. And then I say, if normative properties are identical to descriptive properties, then what that really means is that normative predicates um, ascribe descriptive properties. 
And then it seems that there must be something that makes it the case that a certain normative predicate ascribes a certain descriptive property, right? So you might say uh, the predicate is wrong, ascribes this descriptive property, or it describes that descriptive property, or it describes yet another descriptive property. And we want to know something about what makes it the case that it's this particular descriptive property that is as- that is ascribed by a given normative predicate. So it seems like that can't just be a brute fact. There must be something that makes that makes that the case. And then the general structure of the argument is that I say, well, there are two kinds of things that could make that the case, that a certain normative predicate describes a certain descriptive property. What makes that the case might be something normative, something about how we should use normative predicates, for example. But then I say, well, if we if we say that, if we're reductive realist and we say that, then we end up in a kind of regress because then we're appealing to something normative to explain what makes it the case that a normative predicate describes a descriptive property. And then we have to apply our reductive realism to that normative thing as well. And then if we again appeal to something normative, then then we end up in, in a kind of in a kind of regress. So that's one thing we can say. And that doesn't seem to work. So then it seems that what we should say, if we're reductive realist, is that what makes it the case that a certain descriptive property is ascribed by a certain normative predicate is something, something descriptive. Maybe, maybe something about what, how we would use normative predicates, um, if we had talked about it for a long time and, uh, had maximum descriptive information or something like that. But at any rate, we should say something, something descriptive. And then I argue in the book that if the reductive realist says that, then the view ends up entailing that there are certain descriptively specified conditions in which our normative judgments are guaranteed to be correct, right? So if you, if you say, for example, what makes it the case that uh, the predicate is wrong ascribes this particular descriptive property is that we would use the predicate is wrong in a certain way if we had uh, full descriptive information, then it would follow that having full descriptive information would guarantee that your normative judgments are correct. And then I say, well, that is actually false. It doesn't seem to be true that uh, there are any descriptive, uh, so descriptively specified conditions that would guarantee that our normative judgments are correct. It's always possible to imagine somebody who is in those descriptively specified conditions and who would make normative judgments that would that we would say are actually incorrect rather than rather than correct. And so then if that's true, then it follows that if there are normative properties, they're not identical to descriptive properties. So then we have two parts of the argument against against realism. The argument against non-reductive realism established that uh, if there are normative properties, they are identical to descriptive properties. And the argument against reductive realism establishes that if there are normative properties, they're not identical to descriptive properties. And it seems that the only way in which those two claims can be can both be true um, is if their antecedent is false and if there are no normative properties. That seems to be the only way in which both of those claims can be true. And, of course, if there are no normative properties, then it follows that realism in general uh, about normative properties is is false. Right. Fa- fantastic. Uh, um, one of the real virtues of the book, I think, is how, um, uh, as you just even described it, how transparent the mode of the argument is at every moment. So uh, that, that's that's one. Wonderful. Can, let me just a, a quick, um, uh, just just a, a quick um, call for some uh, a little bit 
more detail. So if part of the uh, argument against the reductive realist is this sort of regress worry. Yeah. Um, now, I, I myself, uh, I, I tend to be suspicious, although I'm a pragmatist, I'm also, uh, I, I tend to be suspicious of uh, claims that there are such things as virtuous circles and non-vicious regresses. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, can you say something about why this particular regress is a, is a problem? What would you say to somebody who said, well, okay, I understand that there's a regress looming, but maybe it's not a vicious regress, or maybe it's not a regress that we need to we need to strive to avoid. Yeah, that is a that is a that that that's a good question. So I, I guess I think it's a, it's a vicious regress because um, I mean it's um, so in, in so the way I do it in the book is a little bit more complicated than what I, how I just explained it to you. Sure. But the, but the the basic point is that. Uh, it's the kind of regress where the truth of the first claim, so the claim at the end of the regress, is determined by the truth of the claim that's at the very end of the that, – that's, you know, that's, so, so we start with a claim and then we work back and we have to keep working back. Uh, and I think a regress is not vicious if the truth of the claim that we start with determines the truth of the claim that we work back to. But in this case, it's the kind of regress where the truth of the claim that we start with depends on whether the claim at the very end of the regress is true or false. And since it's an infinite regress, there is no claim at the end of the regress. So that means that the claim that we started with, whether that's true or false, is 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 indeterminate. Yeah, that that, it's kind of very abstract. But yes, uh, but I I thought that was a really. uh, that was a really interesting argument. Uh, I have I have a colleague who's an infinitist about epistemic justification that I'm I'm planning to have a conversation with uh, very quickly, very soon after this interview about this particular concern about the sort of you might say the the direction uh, of the the direction of the support chain in the regress that I think is uh, is is really uh, really very interesting. So um, okay. Um, so let's regroup then. So uh, the the main competitor to uh, or the the, the main uh, uh, competitor to the error theory are realist views. The error theory has to establish that they're that they're false. Yet um, uh, there are uh, um, some more contemporary uh, uh, meta ethical positions, some of which you you canvass in the book um, that uh, like the error theory. Avoid realism or strive to avoid realism, mm-hmm. um, and like the error theory, uh, uphold cognitivism. Um, so they think that there there can be true and false. Uh, well, they think that there are truth values from all judgments. Let's say, uh, but yet reject the error theory because they hold that some moral judgments are in fact true. So can you mm-hmm. can you tell us about a, a few of these? Uh, you know, some of them are expressivist or quasi-realist. Uh, can you tell us a, a, about some of these non-realist cognitivisms that are not error theories, and what and why you think they're th- th- ultimately they don't work. Right. Okay. So, so maybe I should start then by saying something about non-cognitivism. Sure. So, uh, so uh, the way I divide it up is uh, there's realism. That's one main competitor, and then there are these two kinds that we just talked about. And then the other main competitor is a, is, is is the view that I call non-cognitivism in the book. And um, so the non-cognitivist is someone who um, 
thinks that normative judgments are not beliefs, so they're not mental states that represent the world, but they're instead um, um, mental states of some other kind. So maybe they're attitudes of approval or disapproval or they're a certain kind of plan or something. Um, and my argument against non-cognitivism uh, starts from the idea that when two people make have, have conf- make conflicting normative judgments, so they have conflicting thoughts about what's right or wrong or good or bad, then normally we think that at most one of these judgments is correct. So we think that it can't be the case that both of these judgments are are correct. And then I look at various ways in which um, non-cognitivism can uh, accommodate the thought that when we think that, uh, that, that that when two people make conflicting normative judgments, we think that at most one of these judgments is is correct. And um, so, so uh, there, there are various ways of, of doing it. So, uh, uh, um, and I guess quasi-realism uh, offers uh, various. So, quasi-realism is a kind of non-cognitivism or expressivism that tries to mimic certain claims that that realists make, or that tries to um, get the advantages of realism without the disadvantages, you might say. And so, so quasi-realists have offered various strategies to accommodate claims like that. And I go through um, uh, all the ones that I know about, and I and I and I argue that none of them really work. And and I think the reason why none of them really works is that. They all end up being sort of, you might say, symmetrical in a certain way. So, for, for example, one way of doing it would be to say, well, um, uh, the thought that when two people make conflicting normative judgments that most one of them is correct is maybe a certain um, higher order disapproval. So it's maybe disapproval of two people having conflicting attitudes of approval and disapproval or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is that um, – if you say that, um, two people who have a normative disagreement might both uh, – so they have conflicting attitudes of approval or disapproval if, if this version of non-cognitivism is, is true. Uh, and they might also have uh, – they might both have the same or similar higher-order attitudes of disapproval. And on top of that, they might also have different third or you know, they might have third order attitudes of disapproval and so on. But the whole situation is kind of symmetrical. So you're just piling, piling attitudes on top of attitudes, you might say. And there isn't really anything um, outside of those people's attitudes that breaks the deadlock and that makes it the case that, that at most one of them can really be, uh, can really be right. That at most one of their conflicting judgments is, is really correct. So that's kind of the, that's that's the, the the intuitive basis of the of the case that I make against against non-cognitivism. So uh, in the in the book, it's a little bit more complicated, but sure. that that that's that's the that, that's an in, intuitive feel for the for the way that I try to argue against non-cognitivism. Uh, okay, so so and. And I take it that that sort of exhausts the main options in, in metaethics. So there are these two kinds of realism and there's non-cognitivism. And then there are certain further views that people have defended in metaethics. But I think, I, I think my arguments against the two kinds of realism and against non-cognitivism, uh, can be employed against those, those other views as well. So, um, so as you say, there are also people who are cognitivists. 
um, but who think that they can do without the sort of metaphysical baggage that realists uh, do with, but without uh, denying that uh, certain moral judgments are true. So they, they, they want to deny in a certain sense that there are moral properties, um, but they – but unlike the error theorist and, and their cognitivists, so, so they think that mental that moral judgments are mental states that that represent the world as being a certain way, so that do ascribe uh, properties, presumably. Um, uh, but they also want to say uh, that there are certain moral judgments that are that are nevertheless uh, 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 true. And I think that with those other views, it a lot depends on the details of what exactly they say. But I think that once the details are spelled out in, in uh, um, sufficiently, uh, then it, it turns out that one of one of the arguments that I give against the other views will apply to uh, those sorts of views as well. Yeah, and um, you know, I, I, I appreciated um, in, in the discussion of some of these. And let's just call, I mean, I think it's fair to call them sort of strange hybrid views. <laughs> Right, that um, a lot of them have a, 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 or embrace a commitment that's sometimes just called quietism, right? Uh, which you know, I, I take it. Um it, it, yeah, it, I, I take it that when somebody says, well, at this point, my theory goes quietist, that is a kind of sort of helping yourself, you know, you know, you know g- g- using a word to get you something that you can't earn with, you know, what Russell would have called honest philosophical labor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, well, I think it's, of- I think it's, I think it's fair to say that no one ever calls themselves a, a quietist, right? So quietist, quietism is you can call somebody else's position quietist, but yeah. But people who have that sort of view don't like to call themselves quietists, maybe for that reason. Um, But I take it, you know, sort of the the best – so I have to say I I find it very hard to get a good handle on what exactly quietists are saying. But I think one way to get a handle on it is to to see them as asserting that there are normative truths – but denying that there are normative properties in a sort of metaphysically heavy sense. So denying that there are moral properties that are really out there in the world in a certain sense. So in that sense, they're not realists, but they nevertheless think that there are right. normative truths that in some sense don't depend on our attitudes, presumably. Right, right. Um, it's, a, it's a puzzling view. <laughs> yeah, and I, so I think that, you know, the, the, so the way to respond to that view is to, is to ask them to say more about what those truths are and how they can be mind-independent if, if they don't, you know, if they, even though the, because the form of the truths is that is presumably that they apply normative predicates to certain objects, and it seems that you know if this is all mind independent, it, that it, it would the predicates would have to apply in virtue of something about the objects that that satisfy the predicates, and then it starts to look like there should be a property out there in the world. So that's one way to push them. Another way to push them would be to say, well, look, if it's really true that there are no normative properties out there in the world, but nevertheless there are normative truths, then um, then you just have to deny that moral judgments uh, represent rep- represent the world as being a certain way because if they did, then they would be ascribing those metaphysically heavy uh, properties. And then if they really do deny that that moral judgments uh, represent the world as being a certain way, um, uh, if they deny that, then they really become kind of non-cognitivists. And then my arguments against non-cognitivism would also apply to at least that version of quietism. Sure. So let's let's now turn to um, some of the positive uh, proposals 
proposals, uh, uh, your, your own development of the error theory, because uh, as we've already said, um, your uh, your book defends the error theory not just for a subclass of of, of judgments, uh, for, uh, of, of normative of, of normative judgments. It's it's all normative judgments. Why should we think that, uh, in your view? Why should we think that uh, the error theory applies to all normative judgments? Well, I think that's just because um, the arguments that I give against the other views are arguments against those views applied to all normative judgments and all normative properties. So I guess um, there's a difference here between the arguments that Mackey gives and that um, that other error theorists like Richard Joyce uh, give because those arguments are really focused more just on moral judgments and moral properties. So um, – uh, it seems important to those arguments that um, they're focused on uh, – and it's very clear in the case of Richard Joyce, for example, that they're focused on the idea that uh, moral judgments imply that there are reasons for you to do something whether you want to do those things or not. And um, – that seems to mean that uh, moral judgments are categorical in a certain way. So they, they, they're true of you independently of what your desires happen to be. So if your arguments for the error theory um, latch on to that feature of certain normative judgments, that they're categorical and independent of what your desires happen to be and so on, then your error theory is going to be more limited. Then it's only going to apply to those categorical normative judgments. And a lot of philosophers would say, well, those categorical uh, normative judgments are mainly moral moral judgments. But I think that the arguments I give against the alternatives to the error theory don't really rely on the idea that um, the judgments that I'm talking about have to be categorical. So I think the arguments also apply to um, instrumental normative judgments, so normative judgments to the fact that uh, if you have a certain desire, then you have a reason to do a certain thing. Right. So, and and I take it that so when we say that they apply to all normative judgments, let's just make sure, make sure that uh, everyone in the audience understands what, what what that covers. So that's not just judgments that uh, you know lying is wrong, but also judgments of the kind you were just saying that um, uh, you know prudential. You know, if if you want yeah. to achieve a particular end here, you know, you ought to you know you ought to take this medicine if you want to cure this disease, uh, and also just the the, the I, I take. Take it that also the, the 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 relation of or, or the relation of being a reason for is also uh, uh, um, one of the properties that we, we should be error theorists about on your view. That's right. Yeah. So I think that you know that it's a relation, but but it faces exactly the same uh, the same arguments as as normative properties. So the, just the mere fact that it's a relation doesn't really mean that the arguments don't apply. Sure. So so the error theory I defend uh, applies to moral judgments. It also applies to uh, judgments about reasons for action, including uh, instrumental reasons for action. It also applies to reasons for belief. Uh, and uh, it may also apply to judgments about rationality, but that depends a little bit on what we mean by rationality. So I think you know we, we might not we might use the word rationality and not mean anything normative, but if we do, then it also applies to that. 
okay. So um, uh, the, the the real sort of, uh, at least for me, the most intriguing feature of of, of your version of the error theory then uh, has to do with um, uh, the extension of uh, the error theoretic analysis to reasons for belief. Um, because one of the features of your version of the error theory is that if the error theory is true, um, uh, it's unbelievable. Yep. Okay. That, you have you have to say more that you have to say more about that. That's that's a really intriguing thought. Yeah. So maybe I should start by saying something autobiographical about this. So great. Um, so when I started seriously thinking about metaethics, I was really impressed by the arguments against realism and or well, initially I, I started out as a kind of non-naturalist realist or a kind of non-reductive realist. Uh, but after a while, I started to think there are really good arguments against this position, and I also thought there were really good arguments against reductive realism, and there were really good arguments against uh, non-cognitivism. And so when I considered each argument individually, I, I thought, you know, that's a good argument, refutes the position, I, I thought. Um, and, of course, I realized that if that was if if that was so, then then really the the position in metaethics that these arguments were supporting was was an error theory and a very general error theory. So an error theory about all normative judgments. But I just sort of found that I couldn't really convince myself that an error theory about all normative judgments was was really was really was really true. So that's sort of um, I, I took it that that was kind of first personal. First personal evidence that that at least I uh, wasn't able to believe this error theory about all normative judgments because I had considered the arguments very carefully and I just found that I didn't form a belief in the theory that I I thought they seemed to show uh, was true. Um, and so so that sort of led me to think that maybe uh, it, it's just the case that we can't really believe the error. Maybe it's not just me, but maybe it's in general true that we can't actually – that none of us can actually believe believe the error theory. Uh, so that's – but obviously that's only first personal evidence. So what, what, what I want to do in the book is, is offer a more general argument, which is uh, um, a more general argument for the claim that we cannot believe the error theory, which if it works also explains why uh, we are unable to believe this very general error theory about all normative judgments. And so the, the argument or explanation that I give starts from the idea that um, we can't have a belief and at the same time think that there is absolutely no reason for the belief. So that doesn't mean that in order to have a belief, in, in order to have a belief, we have to explicitly think that there is a reason for the belief. Uh, we don't need to have thoughts like that. And it also doesn't mean that we have to know what the reason is for the belief, because very often we don't know what the reason is for the belief. But the thought that I start with is that if you believe something, you can't at the same time explicitly think that there is absolutely no reason to think that thing that you that you believe. There's absolutely no reason to believe the thing that you believe, because the thought is well. And if you do, if you do start to believe that there is absolutely no reason for the belief, then the belief uh, will just disappear. If you think there's no reason for the belief and you have that thought consciously and explicitly, then the belief will uh, disappear. So I start by defending that claim, the claim that we can't have a belief and at the same time think that there's no reason for the belief. 
Okay, and then I say, well, an error theory that applies to all normative judgments also applies to judgments about reasons for belief. And so the theory says that there are no reasons for belief, right? So it denies that the property of being a reason for belief exists or the relation of being a reason for belief denies that that exists. So in other words, it says that there are no reasons for belief. And then it seems that in order to really believe the error theory, so to be uh, very confident that the error theory is true while having an adequate understanding of what the theory says, we would then have to believe that there are no reasons for belief, and we would therefore have to believe that there is no reason to believe the error theory. So in other words, if all of this is right, then in order to really believe the error theory, we would have to believe that there is no reason to believe the error theory. But that's the thing that I think we can't do. Right. So if we can't have a belief and at the same time uh, explicitly think that there's no reason for the belief, uh, and if doing that is the only way to uh, really believe the error theory, then it follows that we can't believe the error theory. Now, so good. Um, maybe, though, uh, just a little bit of, uh, of further detail, because you do think that it's um, this this kind of argument that you've just sketched um, works most clearly in the case of what we might call full belief. Right. Um, so can you say something? Because you, you do say in the book, like, we can come close to believing the error theory. Maybe we can come partially to believe it. Um, yeah. Can you say something about why that's a crucial, uh, crucial feature of of, of, of the unbelievability thesis. Yeah, so I should I should say two things about this actually. So one one thing I should say is that I am using the term belief in a particular sense. So there are other senses of the term belief in which we maybe can believe the error theory, but I, I use the term belief to mean um, having a high degree of confidence that something is true and um, adequately understanding the thing that you have a high degree of confidence in. So this is the kind of belief uh, that we would ideally like to have in a philosophical theory. So we believe the theory in the sense that we adequately understand the theory and we have a high confidence that the theory is true. So it's only that sense of belief that I'm talking about. Uh, if by belief you mean a kind of mental state that we can have towards a proposition or a theory that we don't adequately understand or if it only requires a fairly low degree of confidence, then maybe in that sense we can believe the error theory. But that's not the kind of belief that I'm that I'm talking about in, in, in the book. So that's the first thing I should say. And then the other thing is the thing you just mentioned. So I do think that there are various ways to come close to believing believing the error theory. And the two most important ones are, so first of all, one thing we can do is we can believe that the best arguments in metaethics seem to show that the error theory is true. Right. So as long as we don't believe that the arguments actually show this, um, we don't thereby, um, you know, we, we, we're not we're not we're not saying anything that's insincere. Right. So, so that is what I do believe about the arguments in metaethics. So I do believe that the best arguments seem to show that the error theory is true. And what prevents me from moving from there to the claim that the arguments actually show that the error theory is true is that I can't believe the error theory. But that's one way of coming close. And then the other way of coming close is that we can um, believe different parts of the error theory at different times while implicitly changing some of our other beliefs. So when I think about my arguments against uh, realism, I can come to believe that normative properties don't exist. But I think that 
what's going on when I do that is that I implicitly change my background beliefs and I form the background belief that – a kind of implicit belief in the background that uh, normative judgments don't actually ascribe those properties, but they're instead some other kind of state, maybe an attitude of approval or disapproval. Um, and then I can also um, – uh, come to believe the other part of the error theory, so the part that says that normative judgments are mental states that uh, represent the world and that describe properties to things in the world. Um, and I do that by thinking about my arguments against non-cognitivism, but then I think that implicitly in the background, I am sort of assuming that the properties that those judgments ascribe um, do actually do actually uh, exist. So by going through the different arguments against the alternatives to the error theory, I can form a belief in a claim that is part of the error theory while in the background implicitly disbelieving the other part of the error theory. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a highly unusual way to come close to believing a theory, to, you know, believe different parts and, and at the same time disbelieve, implicitly disbelieve other parts. Um, but I think that, you know, if, if I know that the reason why this is going on is that these, um, these things that I believe are part of an overall theory that I can't come to believe, if I know that this is why I'm cycling through the arguments in this way and forming these different beliefs in different parts of the error theory, then it's quite plausible to say that this is another way to come close to believing the error theory. So, great. Um, uh, now, um Let's remind our, our, our listeners that uh, this book is a defense of the error theory right? Uh, that says that <laughs> the error theory is not believable. Uh, and um, this, I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to be as careful as I can in, in getting this thought right because uh, th- there are lots of ways to, 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 to formulate it so that it's, it, it, it's, it's not right. Um, your view is that the unbelievability of the theory – and here's the tricky part. I don't know if I want to say counts in favor of the theory. <laughs> we might say it's what the truth of the theory would predict or something like this, right? So um, we don't want to say that the, the unbelievability gives you a reason to think it's true because what the well, theory you is. Well, I, I don't believe the error theory myself either, so I can say that. <laughs> and you can say it. <laughs> well, let me put it this way. Can you run us through the, the, the thought that um, the unbelievability of the error theory is – not a defeater of the theory, but is actually something that might be a feature of the theory or uh, uh, um, uh, that might be a uh, that might count in favor of the theory. Can you run us through that thought? Yeah. So, so the basic thought is that um, uh, maybe the best way of putting it would be to say the unbelievability of the theory makes the theory more likely to be true. Right. So that's not a that's not a normative claim, but that it's just good. a yeah, claim yeah. that it makes it more likely to be true. And there are several ways in which it does that, I think. So one, one way in which the unbelievability of the error theory makes the theory more likely to be true is that it, it, it gives us a way to deal with certain central objections that, that philosophers have made to, um, at least to moral error theories and, 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 um, it makes a general normative error theory more, that's unbelievable more likely to be true uh, because um, uh, you can't you can't give those you can't I think you can't really run those objections against this more general error theory. So one example um, 
would be what's known as the Morian, what's often called the Morian objection to the error theory because it resembles uh, G.E. Moore's um, argument against skepticism about the external world. Mm-hmm. So this objection says that the error theory entails uh, certain claims that are just really, really hard to accept. So, for example, the error theory – I mean, obviously, the error theory entails that all normative judgments are uh, false and so um, – it seems that claims that deny that something has a normative property should be true. So it seems that the error theory entails that torturing people for fun is not wrong, right? Because that just denies that torturing people for fun has the property of being wrong. But then the objection says, or the Morian objection says, well, look, our, our confidence in the claim that torturing people for fun is wrong is just much higher than our confidence in the truth of the error theory. And I can certainly say my confidence that uh, it is wrong to torture people for fun is is really much, much higher than my confidence in the truth of the error theory. But then the objection says, well, that shows that we should just reject the error theory and continue to believe that torturing people for fun is is wrong, right? So you you draw out this really hard to accept uh, implication of the error theory and you say, well, look, our confidence in the negation of that expert, of that of that implication is very very high and is always going to be much higher uh, than our confidence in the truth of the error theory and that shows that we should just reject the error theory so that's one prominent objection to the error theory and there are different ways to deal with the objection but i do think that if we cannot believe the error theory then we can just say that the reason why the explanation of why our confidence in the claim that torturing people for fun is much higher than our confidence in the error theory is just that we cannot believe the error theory and so our confidence in the error theory is always going to be very, very low. But that, of course, doesn't show that the error theory is false. So it just shows something about us and about our inability to believe the error theory rather than showing that there is anything uh, wrong with with the theory itself. So that's, that's one objection. Um, another objection that people often make is the objection from bad faith. So we talked earlier about how um, people who uh, endorse a moral error theory often don't stop making moral judgments. And it's certainly true that philosophers who defend an error theory about all normative judgments don't give up all of these normative judgments. Um, so instead, what they do is they just continue to make normative judgments just like just like the rest of us. And the objection says, well, look, that's that's a form of bad faith. If you really want to defend the error theory, then you should be consistent and you should just give up all of your normative judgments. And then the reply to that objection, if we can't believe the error theory, could be, well, look, you know, um, we can't. No, it, it, no one can believe the error theory. So even people who defend the error theory can't believe the theory, and that enables them to hold on to their normative judgments without thereby being being in bad faith. So I think I mean, a, a general feature of what's going on here, I think, is that these objections to the error – I mean, not all of them, but, but a, a lot of objections to the error theory start from the idea of – what you would have to do in order to really believe the theory or what it would, what it would be like or what you'd be committed to if you really believed the error theory. Um, and those objections are uh, not objections to the theory uh, itself. And if the defender of the theory can't believe the theory, then they're not even uh, objections that show that there's anything really wrong with, with somebody who defends the error theory without believing it. 
and I, I take it that it's also that part of what the error theory would, uh, part of what the truth of the error theory would mean is its its unbelievability, right? That that it's almost a kind of indirect evidence, or our unbel- our, our inability to fully form. A, a full belief of the error theory is what the error theory w- would result in were it true. Yeah. So, um, uh, so it, it, uh, it, it, it enables me to give a nice explanation of why no one is going to be convinced by the arguments <laughs> that I give in the book. <laughs> and that's because no one, including me, right? I, I don't believe the error theory. I can't believe the error theory and none of my readers are going to be able to believe the error theory. So that, that, that explains why, um, um, people are probably going to underestimate the plausibility of the arguments, including me, right? So when I, when I consider all of the, when I consider the arguments separately, uh, I can be convinced by them, but I can't be convinced by all of them, all of them at the same time. And I think another thing, um, that we can, that, that we can sort of nicely explain if the error theory is unbelievable is, is we can, we can explain why this debate in metaethics has gone on for such a long time, uh, without actually reaching a, reaching a consensus. And that's because we're circling around this truth that none of us can really, really believe. Um, so, yeah. So, um, one last thing on this, and then and then uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll wrap up. Um, there, you 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 draw an analogy between the the, the error theory as an unbelievable theory with some other um, views in philosophy that you suspect might also be unbelievable, like yeah. say certain forms in philosophy, certain eliminativist views in philosophy yeah. of mind, for example. Can you just yeah. spell out that analogy a little bit? I thought it was really interesting. So um, um, it, it works differently in different cases, but the, sure. my, my general thought was just that um, um, saying that a view is literally unbelievable is sort of a new way to um, – uh, defend the view. At least it, it's a new thing that we can say uh, that might help to defend the view by diffusing certain objections or uh, predicting that no one is going to be convinced by your arguments, even though they're good arguments. And so my thought was that there are certain other views in philosophy that that are at least uh, clearly ha- very hard to believe. And then defenders of those views might say, well, actually, those views are impossible to believe in a way that doesn't reflect badly on the view itself. So the view itself might still be true. It's just that we can't believe it. So, um, And I run through several objections, so several examples of views that, that can perhaps – I mean, I don't really commit myself to it, but right. that can perhaps be defended in this way. So uh, skepticism about responsibility where you say no one is responsible for anything, um, that might be the sort of thing that we can't really believe. Um, eliminativism about propositional attitudes, so the view that says um, beliefs and desires and intentions and so forth don't um, don't exist. <laughs> uh, so it seems that in order to believe that view, you would have to believe that you don't believe it, and that might be another thing that that if you really think hard about it, maybe we can't, maybe we can't do. But of course, that doesn't show that the view is actually false. So that's something that defenders of that view might might use in order to um, make the view uh, more show that the view is more likely to be true than it than it would otherwise uh, be. And I think. Um, uh, nihilism about truth, so the view that nothing is true, can perhaps also be um, uh, partly defended in this sort of way. 
Uh, and there might be some other views as well that can be can be defended in this way. I mean, it's a it's a general sort of move that I think maybe certain other views could could make as well. Right against the backdrop of what I think is a, a, a pretty, I mean, a very solid meta philosophical lesson, which is, um, you know, it's it's very easy to lose sight of the distinction between the truth of a view. And it's believability. <laughs> yeah, right. And these two right. things are often conflated, and it's very you can start seeing places where they're once you see how you know how basic that distinction is. You you know I'll just say uh, you start seeing the conflation all over the place. Well, philosophers often say that's hard to believe. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and then they mean that's false. But those are and obviously I mean it's a way of speaking. So. <laughs> Uh, normally it's not a problem, but it's important to be be aware of of how different those two things can be. Right. So Bart Strummer, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, we, we've got only a few minutes left. Um, so you've you've written a book in defense of a view that you that you yourself don't believe because the view is that you can't be believed. Um, right. What what's your next project? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess yeah. <laughs> I guess what I'm working on now is, is some papers that extend certain themes and arguments from the book. Um, maybe I'd like to do something that extends it to other areas of philosophy. And, and another thing I'd like to do is maybe return to political philosophy after this. So, um, so I'm kind of interested in whether it's possible to defend a, a Rawlsian version of liberalism by appealing to certain forms of skepticism or maybe maybe even to the error theory. So um, uh, so Brian Barry tried to defend Rawlsian liberalism by appealing to skepticism about value. And and I guess the consensus view is that that's that just doesn't work because um, any kind of skepticism about about uh People's conceptions of the good or about value are just also going to uh, going to affect liberalism itself. Right. Um, and I agree that on the face of it, it doesn't work. But I'm, I'm, I, that's something I'd like to think more about. I, I do think that um, a certain kind of skepticism about value um, um, can perhaps go together with a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of uh, uh, liberalism. And maybe um, the unbelievability of the error theory or of certain forms of skepticism could also um, uh, help to um, defend liberalism in that sort of way. Though I, though I should say I'm not at all sure about this. That's just something that, that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about right now, how, how that might perhaps be done. Well, Bart, I just w want to say, just imparting, the, the, the Unbelievable Errors is a, is a fabulous, fantastic book. I, 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 I had a wonderful, wonderful time reading it, and uh, I highly recommend it uh, to anybody who's uh, listening to the podcast. Um, uh, I want to thank you for your time, and uh, I'll keep an eye out for, uh, for, for, your, for future things by you, um, and I'll keep an eye on the journals for uh, uh, some, of the, um, some of the reactions to the book. I take it that there's probably – reviews and other kinds of uh, uh, pushback in the works uh, from the meta-ethics community. Am I am No I right? doubt, yeah. <laughs> so, I hope so. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of philosophy. That's good. That'll be wonderful. I'll keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. And um, thank, you. thank you, listener, uh, um, for listening to the podcast. Again, uh, the, the, the book under discussion is uh, written by Bart Strumer. Uh, the book is titled Unbelievable Errors, and it's published with Oxford University Press. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, and bye for now.